When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey out there, rock and rollers. Welcome to episode number 136 of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast. Brought to you by me, your host, Mac B. The Wolf. And I will be joined, as always, by my partner in crime from the east coast of the U.S., Gary Action Jackson. And in fact, Jackson is just north of the hometown of the band that we're going to be featuring on this show which is right around the 4th of July. So I wanted to pick a very American band for this 4th of July Independence Day kind of show. And we decided to go with Leonard Skinner out of Jacksonville, Florida, whose debut album, pronounced Leonard Skinner, debuted about 50 years ago as we're releasing this show. And as someone who lived in Jacksonville for a long time, I know, and Jackson knows, because he's right in the wheelhouse down there, that folks down there still love Leonard Skinner. And if you listen to classic rock radio, you listen for an hour, you're going to hear Leonard Skinner. If you listen for a half an hour, you got a pretty good chance. People still love to hear these great songs from these guys who came from really rough roots to become a fantastic hard rock band. They kind of just get labeled with that southern rock thing a lot, but I feel like they were much more than that. Their riffs were fantastic, and Ronnie Van Zant is a much better songwriter than he ever gets credit for. He probably just gets denigrated because he's from the South. But I gotta tell you, you listen to these songs, especially on this first record, I think you're gonna be blown away with how good they are, just how down and dirty, honky-tonk, good time, but still very hard rock and rock and roll. It's not country, it's very much rock and roll, and they were awfully good at it, and they deserve to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame where they are. And this is before the real classic lineup solidified, because Ed King, who would be one of their three guitar players, was actually playing bass. Leon Wilkinson had left the band for a little while. Ed King was intended to play the guitar. He comes in to play the bass. But then Ronnie decides, no, nah, we need Ed on the guitar. So we go back, get Leon back, and now they've got three guitars between Ed King, Alan Collins, and Gary Rossington. Really created an amazing sound. And this first album was the foundation of it because it had huge, huge hits on it and songs that would be staples of their catalog and live shows for years to come, like Gimme Three Steps, like Tuesday's Gone, and like the totally epic Freebird, which you can't even go to a bar where there's a band playing Southern Rock and not hear someone in the crowd say, Play some free bird. But at the end of those sessions, there was also another song that ended up on their second album. They wanted to maybe squeeze on the first album, but there was no time. It was a little ditty called Sweet Home Alabama. So obviously this is a very important time for the band in 1973 to get this lineup together, to work with Al Cooper, who was a, a Blood, Sweat, and Tears fan and fame and had worked with Bob Dylan, among others, as a producer. He helped them put these songs together, get it out, and get it out to the world. Plus, he hooked them up with Pete Townsend of The Who, who was his friend, who booked them as the opening act on the Quadrophenia Tour. Wow, heady days indeed. Now, we need to quickly take care of a little bit of business. As usual, we need to mention that we are proud members of Pantheon Podcast Network, a network of about 100 different shows, all music-related. 
not all rock and roll, but there is something in there for everyone. And we have guested on many of those shows, and we've had some of those guests on our show before. Go out to PantheonPodcast.com to learn more, or follow them at Pantheon Pods. And of course, we have to talk about our fantastic sponsor out of the UK, RareVinyl.com. Guys, Rare Vinyl has been in business for 40 years. Okay, They ship albums and CDs and tour programs and posters and whatever you might find in their catalog of over a quarter of a million items. They ship it all over the world. So it doesn't matter if you're in Timbuktu or Tennessee, you can go to RareVinyl.com, find something that you love, and then use the code UGLY, U-G-L-Y, to knock 10% off of your shipments. I know we have a lot of record collectors out there, and there's definitely Skinner fans out there who want something nice, maybe a pristine first edition or something that you can't find everywhere. Go to rarevinyl.com, use the code UGLY, and save yourself 10% off your purchases. Now, I was fortunate enough to meet Leonard Skinner, at least the surviving members of Leonard Skinner in 1991, when they did the comeback record, Leonard Skinner 1991. Met him at a record store, got him to sign my CD. Thought it was super cool, and I've been listening to him really ever since. And before that, too. I remember distinctly listening to Freebird in the car, the end, the solo, with my dad. Just not wanting to get out of the car, even though it was like 20 below zero. We're like, listen to those guitars. Would you hear that? It's unbelievable. It's iconic. It's huge. Everyone knows Freebird. And the three-guitar attack makes them powerful. They have a long legacy, especially in the South in the southeast and we're going to celebrate it here on fourth of july week this is leonard skinnard's first album pronounced leonard skinnard at 50 right here on the wolf Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. So growing up in the Northeast, you probably had a different, I don't know, exposure or thoughts about Leonard Skinner than you do now living basically in their backyard. Or like when we went to school in Florida and we would visit like my folks in Jacksonville, 
and we listened to classic rock and like every fifth or sixth song was Leonard Skinner, right? <laughs> it must have been a different experience growing up in the in the Northeast. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, absolutely. Um, yeah, they it was, you know, you asked me about, um, when we were talking about Blue Oyster Cult, you asked me, oh, you know, they're from New York, you know, did they, were they was that a big deal? No, it wasn't because everybody was from New York. Down here, you're right. It's all Leonard Skinner all the time. And yeah, growing up in the Northeast, it was pretty much just, Sweet Home Alabama, Freebird, and maybe a couple other ones that you'd heard of, but yeah, they were they were the other problem too was growing up at that time. You know, in the in the mid to late eighties, early nineties, they were already gone. The, right. You know, the plane the plane crash was in seventy seven. This was already kind of old news. Whereas a lot of the other bands that we liked were kind of having a uh, resurgence in the late 80s, early 90s. I know they came back. I know they kind of reformed in 91, but that was still with Johnny. So yeah, growing up, it was, they were just kind of like a one or two hit band and that was it up in uh, in Connecticut. Yeah. And I grew up in the Midwest, obviously. And I mean, look, once you get into guitars, like I did in the late 80s when we were in high school, you can't ignore something like Freebird, right? I mean, it's a guitar anthem. That jam at the end it's huge and then obviously as we got a little bit older that song kind of became bigger thanks to some movies and stuff like that but it also kind of became a bit of a cliche right it's kind of, <laughs> play free bird <laughs> always always somebody in the back screaming play free bird yes and i think you can even hear that on one more from the road the live oh, album where he's like, okay, which song do you want to hear? What are they saying? Well it's the one you haven't played yet. Okay, how about that one? You know <laughs> An epic jam, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the whole Southern rock thing really took up, took off, rather, in the early 70s, thanks to the Allman Brothers, thanks to the great work of Dwayne on his uh, slide guitar uh, and Brother Greg there, and the rest of the boys. I mean, Live at the Fillmore was a huge song of I mean, a huge record for them, kind of opened up the doors to a lot of things and turned a lot of people on to Southern rock. And then you started to see more people kind of coming through that door like Leonard Skinner and Molly Hatchet, you know, Mountain with Leslie West were already, you know, a, a bit of a deal, all right. But yeah, it was like everybody's from New York or everyone's from California or wherever. But then you started seeing, all right, you got this kind of Southern, it's got a little blues, it's got a little country in it, maybe a little bit of folk, plus their own thing. And it kind of created a sound. Molly Hatchet, I guess you could throw in there as well. I think they're also mm-hmm. from Jacksonville. Yeah, they are. So, so yeah, suddenly there's this new sound that people are are starting to uh, find attractive. Now, and I, looking back on it now, or thinking about it now, when I figured out what was going on in that band, I think what made them great also kind of hurt them. You know, we talk about we love Jimmy Page. Who's the guitar player in Led Zeppelin? It is, was, and always will be Jimmy Page. That's right. In the Who, it's Pete Townsend. You know, in in uh, Pink Floyd, it's David Gilmer, and in Leonard Skinner, wait, they had three. Wait, right. that's very confusing. And who's playing lead on this? And who's playing? So while and and definitely going back and listening to this record, you can tell that they're all great players. I think that back and forth of you didn't really know who was playing what kind of almost hurt them from a rock god perspective. A, a little bit, yeah. I, I'm kind of with you there because. Obviously, now it's been 50 years since it's been out. We want to look at it through critics' eyes and say, all right, let's pick it apart a little bit. You know, what was good, what was bad, all that kind of thing. Not to mention on this one, Ed King, who at times may have been their best guitar player, he doesn't even play guitar really on this. He, he plays on a couple of tracks, 
which I didn't realize either until doing research for this because it's not, it, they've got all six guys on the cover. Leon's on the cover. So you think, oh, okay, well he played bass. No, he did not. Right. It's, I think it's all seven guys though. Oh, seven guys. That's right. Seven. Yeah. I think. And, seven, and, I, yeah. and you know, honestly, that might've been part of the thing too. Now thinking about it, like there's way too many guys in that band. I can't even keep them straight. Right. Yeah. You're right about that. And they had been together for 10 years in various incarnations before mm-hmm. this first one came out. It's not like they were together for a couple of years. Then they got the record deal and went out, you know. So, yeah, going back, they're all from Jacksonville, Florida. And generally speaking, from the west side of Jacksonville. And it's someone who's lived in Jacksonville myself for a long time. And you who've lived close by now in, in southern Georgia for a long time. That's a it's kind of the rougher side of town, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, it, it's it's honestly where like poor white people, very working class people live. And it's rough. I mean, it's it's hard growing up there. And if, you know, these guys hadn't made it in a band, well, God knows what would have happened to them, right? Because they were kind of rough and tumble kind of guys. That's what it seemed like. It seemed like, they, yes, they love to play, but they were also, like, looking to get into trouble or at least looking to fight. They were, at one point in time, they were talking about how they uh, they would play for a lot of, like, because this is a big, uh, Jacksonville's a huge Navy town. Right. So they play for a lot of sailors, and you know what they wanted to do after they had a couple of beers, and they were more than happy to oblige with the a uh, parking lot skirmish at the end of the uh, right the yeah show. I mean they're, they're they're off the boat they're there to get drunk and then they either want to screw or they want to fight right. uh, especially and- <laughs> in the early 70s or look at these long haired you know yeah, musician exactly. types let's yeah they, they need an ass kicking but Ronnie was you're more than happy to oblige him he'd fight anybody man. correct yes I mean, he's, he's a tough guy more than happy to. Uh, you know, the, the interesting thing about Ronnie, which I, I don't know if I knew, didn't know, didn't really think about the fact that he's just kind of a small dude, like yeah. short in stature, but he always got, he always performed barefoot. So like he never, it's not like he ever cared. Like he wasn't a guy that wore like big heels or cowboy boots or anything. He's like, this is me. This is who I am. And yeah, you want to say something about it? I will my hand through the back of your head yeah exactly and it wasn't just to, to folks who would approach him in bars or you know it might even into a reporter you know it's like if he, he starts asking questions you know like, like yeah well how do you think you're going to get out of this hotel room right now and i can't even imagine i can't even imagine what that feels like where it's like oh he's not kidding oh he's right. really upset about whatever you just told him and now he's looking to Put you in your place. Yeah, no thanks. Even producer Al Cooper, who did their first three records, and he kind of, he formed Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and then he kind of went on to become a a producer and work with Dylan and, and, you know, kind of made his name that way. But when, you know, they're recording Simple Man, he's like, yeah, I'm not hearing this. I don't think this is good. I don't think it's going to be on the record. Ronnie basically walked him out to his car and said, we'll finish up this. You can go the fuck home. You know, and he's like, <laughs> I was scared of Ronnie. And like, yeah, you should have been because he would have ripped you one if he wanted to. Now, that's an interesting concept, too, that I didn't think about. And and again, being from the North, it didn't really click with me until I watched the, uh, what was it, If I Leave Here Tomorrow. Great documentary. So, yeah. Correct. And they were talking about, you know, growing up in Jacksonville, being from the South, performing in front of the uh, Confederate flag. And Gary Rossington was saying, you know, we never met anything disrespectful. We never met anything hurtful. We Mm -hmm. were just proud to be from the South. And at one point in time, the part about where they walked him out to the car, they referred to him as the Yankee slicker. Uh Somebody coming down. So then they get to where they're going. They go to Europe for the first time and they're like, oh, Yanks. And they're like, whoa, stop. No. Right. No, 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 no. You don't call us that. You're from America, right? Yeah. Then you're a Yankee. No, we're from the South. We, they, just that, that thought of not being associated with anything from the North was interesting. 
Yeah, and I also give Gary credit there, you know, for saying, look, we didn't know we were offending anybody. We certainly weren't trying to, but mm-hmm. we know now that that is offensive to people, you know, and, and we don't have that backdrop anymore. We don't do that anymore. Correct. You know? So it's like, you know, give people a chance to evolve and to learn and to grow. You know, you want to rip Leonard Skinner because they played in front of the Confederate flag in 1975. Fine. It, it's kind of like, you know, ripping John Wayne for something he said in Playboy in the 70s. I'm like, the <laughs> dude is dead. Just let it go, you know, kind of thing. But they, they have evolved and realized that wasn't probably the best thing to do, mm-hmm. but it wasn't their intention to come out as like promoting the Klan or being racist. Like we're from the South and we're proud of it. Damn it. Right. Kind of thing. And and in that same vein, I know Neil Young has come out and said, okay, listen, I know in the song Southern man, I made some very sweeping racial comments or Mm -hmm. cultural comments. I'm sorry. Not everybody from the South is like that, obviously. So I think, you know, I think we we have evolved a little bit to not putting everybody in the same, in the same bucket, but that was always an interesting concept for me. Cause like, if you're from the North, no one really cares. No one has Northern pride. No one cares. Right. It's just, it's just, it, it, there's, there's, it's like a pride about your town, right? You're like where you come from, like literally the town you went to high school in. Right. Correct. <laughs> but, but just that idea of, of having that Southern pride and, and being, you know, happy for, for where you came from. It's, it's a different deal, but I, I definitely understand it more now. Yeah. And you, you lived in Texas for a long time and you understand correct. how people are proud about being Texas. That's for sure. <laughs> also the South, I would say. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So so we come to this first album here after they gig around for a long time. You've got Ronnie Van Zant on the vocals. Not an amazing singer, but his songwriting is pretty poignant, I got to say. For a guy who doesn't have a lot of education, he understands how to communicate with people with a turn of phrase, man. He, he really does. And it can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people, his lyrics. Right. And, and I think it really struck a chord with people who are from where he's from. You know, that working man, the blue collar person, you know, you, you, I think you see a lot of your own life and your, what you've gone through in these songs and especially in the lyrics. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. And he basically, he co-writes every song that Skinner has ever done. You know, the different, Mm -hmm. generally the different guitar players get songwriting credits on the stuff that they come up with. But Ronnie writes all the lyrics. And it's interesting because, you know, Ronnie apparently never wrote anything down. (laughs) Ever. (laughs) You yeah. know, and, and Bob Burns, who was like the, the drummer at the time, is like, Ronnie, man, why don't you write this stuff down? And basically his response was, if it ain't worth remembering, it, it ain't worth writing down anyway. <laughs> and he worked the hell out of these guys. Like Al Cooper even said so in that documentary. He's like, they came in and you think, oh, well, they're this jam band, right? Because of Free Bird and the way they can really go off on some of these songs. Yeah. But that's really not the case. They were a very practiced band. And every note was just right, just the way Ronnie said that you needed mm-hmm. to do it, you know? So that's kind of the way they were. He was in charge and they did as he said, basically. Yeah, that was insane to hear about when they got to Muscle Shoals and and whoever whoever was talking about actually working with them in the studio said, I've never seen a band that was so polished and there were no changes to anything. Once they left that, what do they call that place? The Hell House? Yeah, their big practice uh, house down they, on yeah, the river. Once they left and were ready to record, that was it. These songs were done, polished, and ready to be recorded. We're not going into the studio to find, you know, find the sound or find inspiration. No, they were they were ready to roll. Yeah, and they had some good talent in the band. I mean, Bob Burns was a solid drummer. Leon mm-hmm. Wilkinson was on bass. Although sometimes I think Ricky Medlock, who was in the band now, he would come in and sometimes be a second drummer with Bob for a while. This is before they became okay. uh, recording artists. 
Yeah. And, and then eventually he left. And they had Alan Collins, who'd been with them really since the beginning. <laughs> Talk about them being rough and tumble. You know, Ronnie had such a reputation that Ronnie came after Alan one day with Bob on their bikes. And Alan's like, uh-oh, this Ronnie guy's tough. He's going to come kick my ass. I'm going to get the hell out of here. So went and climbed a tree to get away from him. I'm like, no, dude, we're, we're, we're not here to kick your ass. We, we want you to join the band because we hear you're a heck of a guitar player. So, I mean, it, it, it's, it goes back that far to when they're like 14 years old in high school. And crazy. And then, of course, Gary Rossington, the other lead guitar player they had really since the beginning as well. Correct. Yeah. And that, and that was the interesting thing, too. We were talking to Mick Wall about the Eagles, and he was saying they got a lot of backlash because they were seen as this manufactured band, you know, guys that kind of just came together through being working musicians and then put a band together. You could not be farther off than Skinner because I think what did Rossington say? Like they started hanging around when he was like 12 or 13 years old. Right. And they just, I mean, that was just it. They were just kids who wanted to be in a band. Except. The one outlier was Ed King. Now, Billy Powell was their piano player, and he had been their roadie. And I guess they were playing a dance at the Bowles School, which is a pretty fancy school in Jacksonville. Like, it's it's like rich kids go there, and I guess they played it because they had money to pay them for the gig. It's, it's, it's where Chipper Jones did his high school before he went oh, on really? to okay. Hall of Fame career with the Atlanta Braves. But, yeah, very fancy place. But they kind of heard him playing a thing one morning. Or, you know, when he's setting up and like, okay, yeah, you need to join the band. And he added, helped add that, uh, you know, the piano opening on Freebird, which we'll, we'll get to. But mm-hmm. the outlier is Ed King. Ed was from California and he had been in Strawberry Alarm Clock, who had the big kind of 60s pseudo psychedelic pop incense peppermint song. <laughs> Yeah. And and I guess that while they were touring the South at some point in the late 60s or the early 70s, he had hooked up with those guys. They had maybe opened for Strawberry Alarm Clock or something like that. And he said, hey, you guys are, you know, you kind of got it going on here. If, if you ever need anybody, you know, give me a buzz. And so I guess Ronnie held on to that. And at some point, Leon decided he wanted to leave. So he split, Ed comes in, and he's going to play the bass and not guitar. And there's a classic photo of them at Hell House where they come outside and basically everybody in the band except for Ed is on the right side of the door. And Ed's kind of on the left by himself, right? Because <laughs> he's not like them. He's from California. He's kind of a fat kid, no offense to, to Ed. But I mean, for a rock star, especially back then, he's kind of a chunky little booger, but a heck of a guitar player and, and could write some really good songs. Among them, Sweet Home Alabama. But we'll get to that. And then I think right before this comes out, he realized that Ed's Ed's too good of a guitar player to have him on the bass. Ronnie did. So he went to Leon and kind of convinced him that he needed to come back. And then they had the three guitar army, three guitar attack in place. Yeah, kind of unorthodox at that point in time. And I know they kind of alluded to a little bit in the movie, but I, I just wonder how much of a hurdle that was to overcome for Ed for being so far away and mm-hmm. probably not being able to relate to a lot of the things that, that, that the rest of the guys could, you know, even like the way they, they spoke to each other, you know, yeah. kind of the whole deal. I think he said when he got there, he had to spend like two weeks at the Hell House by himself at night, which 
Ew. I know. Yeah, because well, renting one of those little cabins down the river wouldn't have cost them a whole lot. But mm-hmm. if you're going to keep your equipment there, you got to make sure no one's coming to steal it. So, right. Uh, you know, somebody's yeah. got to spend the night there. So, yeah, that's your initiation rookie. <laughs> <laughs> no heat, no air, nobody around. Ugh. Oh, and by the way, people may be trying to rob us. So just be like, uh, just be on the lookout. Yeah, not to mention there's gators in the water and there's cockroaches as big as your foot (laughs) crawling around. Hi, this is Mick Wall and you are listening to the ugly American werewolf in London. So so some of these songs they've been doing for years and they finally got the opportunity to record them. And so so here we go with pronounced Leonard Skinner, which I guess was uh, their old P.E. teacher was named Leonard Skinner, right? Yes, correct. So the story goes. Yeah. And I think that was that was at a time when, you know, you were having that kind of cultural shift of he was probably, you know, a guy from the 50s that was. Everybody flat, top. flat yeah flat top and you know give me 20 push-ups and these guys were long-haired you know pot smoking hellions and mm-hmm. yeah i can only imagine what the, you know every day you knew he was just going to go for it every day he was just going to pound your head in yeah <laughs> all right so we start off with this it, 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 an amazing debut i mean and it, it's the picture of him in georgia kind of on the street there it's it's got all seven of them there <laughs> another funny story is rossington had been partying so hard that you know he they took the pictures, and then a few seconds later, he pukes all over the sidewalk. <laughs> There's Prince Charming for you. What I didn't realize, that, and that's a great story, but what I didn't realize is, until I look closely, Ed is on the end mm-hmm. of the of the photo. And I guess they had taken it a couple of times, but for whatever reason, the one that they use there's like a lightning strike right behind him it looks like he's being hit by lightning yeah which is a rare yeah just thing, kind of a, right? just kind of a cool like you know not, not photoshopped or anything else just something that happened yeah yeah and so and that, but see that's also kind of part of him being an outsider as well it's gonna yeah. be, all right we're gonna lose the guy it's gonna be this guy who's not yeah. really one of us you know kind of thing <laughs> Well, it starts off here. You got to come out rocking, right? So it starts out with I Ain't the One, which is a Rossington Van Zandt song. It's good. It's got a nice, rough, honky-tonk type of groove to it. It's a little bit strange at the very beginning with all the cymbal stuff going on. That that threw me off, and I don't know if I'd ever really sat and listened to that before. I, mean, I know the song, but I, I'd never heard in the first six, eight seconds. It's kind of got all this cymbal stuff. I'm like, is that is that Bob Burns idea? Well, where did that come from? <laughs> And the problem with this record is you've got so many tracks on here that you know by heart. Yeah. It, it's, it's would be easy to skip this one to go right to Tuesday's gone, but yeah, it's good. I like it. It's, it's, it's yeah. It's slow at the beginning, but it's kind of a little bit greasy. Mm-hmm. And then the boogie woogie piano comes in. One thing that that was brought up that I really didn't realize is that for all of the um, hype that this gets of being a guitar record, it's really more of a piano record. You're Billy right. does a great job. And, and I can only imagine where, when they were like, he said he said something about playing piano. You can play piano? Yeah, go ahead and do it. Well, what the hell have you been doing moving stuff around? You need to play <laughs> full time with the band. I do like the sentiment in this one too, where it's like, you know what, baby, whatever you think, I ain't the one. Okay. Yeah. Stop it. Yeah. Maybe for tonight, fine, but yeah. long term, no. <laughs> 
It ain't me, babe. Yeah. No, it's a good opener. And it, and it kind of, it's got good rhythm to it. It's got a good honky groove to it. And it closes like with the big bang crash. Like everybody's jamming at the end. Like, you know, like a lot of songs do. I'm yeah. like, okay, good way to open the record. Cool. And then they go into Tuesday's Gone. Now, look, we talk about sequencing on of records a whole lot. And Tuesday's Gone is a great song. It's, it's a classic, classic Skinner song. But to me, they should have put Gimme Three Steps second and Tuesday's Gone third. Okay. Because generally speaking, you start off with a rocker and that's what I Ain't The One is. Then you want to kick it up a notch on track two. And that would be Gimme Three Steps, man. A good, a, a real honky talk rocking single, right? And then you slow it down on the third track for Tuesday's Gone. Now, I mean, they probably figured, hey, let's get to this great song, which Tuesday's Gone is. Kind of a ballad, little bit of a lament, mm-hmm. but uh, but I would I would have sequenced it different. I would have put that third, and I would have put "Give Me Three Steps," which was the first single, second. But they didn't ask me, <laughs> and it's not like nobody ever heard "Give Me Three Steps" because, like again, I said it, it was a single or "Tuesday's Gone" because that's been classic rock staple. I mean, you know, since we've been alive, right? And and we were talking to uh, to Christy from Rock Is Lit about uh, "Days and Confused," and I can't. I just can't hear this song anymore without thinking of the the end of the party at the Moon Tower where the keg is empty and people are all bent out of shape, throwing the cups around because they got to leave. That will always now be a part of this song for me. That'll absolutely, man, absolutely. That song in that moment, and I mean, I think one more from the road came out in '76, which is when which is when that movie took place. Oh, okay, like, last day of school, 1976, right? Uh-huh. So would have been May or June of '76. So like that's just perfect, you know. And again, there's a lot of great piano on mm-hmm. here. I didn't. Ed does play some guitar on here while Billy's doing his piano solo. And Cooper is on the Mellotron, which we learned a little bit about when we learned about the Byratron uh, in mm-hmm. the episode we did with Kevin Mulrine on Yes's Tormato story. It's too long to be a single because it's over seven minutes, but it does also have some great guitar stuff on it. I mean, I, I consider it more of a piano single at this point, more of a Billy song. And it's amazing that Billy never gets any like writing credit on these songs because what he adds to the arrangement is iconic. Yeah, I wondered how that worked with these guys because you're right. There's no way anybody else wrote that for him. They just probably said, "Okay, here's the here piano fill here," and he came up with it. Yeah, he does add a lot to this, and the the guitar work on this too is it's it's just it's just right. It's not overpowering, but it fits in nice. Yeah, and Alan Collins I think deserves a lot of credit. He was for a long time he was kind of my third favorite guitar player in the band because he's he's kind of a quiet guy. He's tall and lanky. Ed wrote Sweet Home Alabama, so that's big time. You know, Gary wrote Freebird, so I'm like, that's pretty big time. Well, Gary and Alan wrote it together. So Gary and and Ed were kind of my my favorites. But Alan, I mean, his co-writes on this were Tuesday's Gone, Give Me Three Steps, and Freebird. Well, 
<laughs> That's the class of the operation yeah. right there. Yeah. yeah. So he was obviously a damn fine guitar player. I think his stepmom was a classically trained guitarist and it showed him a few things and then he kind of took off from there. But this is, you know, it's a it's kind of a ballad, but it's also got some great stuff in it. Lamentful lyrics by Ronnie. He's talking about he's talking about his girl. I don't know. He some of his lyrics were could mean different things to different people. And I think that's why a lot of his songs, besides just the riffs, have stood the test of time. Yeah. Make of it what you will. Yeah. Definitely, definitely um sadness and lament for something either ending. And yeah, I think that's a, even though, wait, what were the two singles off of this? Well, it was, it was Give Me Three Steps. And then later, much, much later, it was Freebird. Okay. Yeah. Because we got to talk about that at some point, because that was kind of a weird situation. I've always thought of this as a single, even though I guess it never was, but yeah, just a, just a real nice, a real nice change of pace in the catalog too. this. It's not a straight ahead rocker and and it just fits perfectly in the context of this record. Right. Except I still, and and you're, you know, it could have been a single, and thanks to FM radio, it kind of is, because uh, mm-hmm. it continues to go on. But it's too long to be a straight-up single, so they would have had to cut it. But yeah, I, I still think, as far as the tracks go, if you put Give Me Three Steps second, you come out with a rocker, then a real rocker, then you bring it back a bit, and then Simple Man fourth, the last song on there, kind of bring it all down. I don't know. I, that's the way I would see it. But again, it sold 2 million copies in the U.S. without my involvement. So <laughs> no worries there. Now on to Give Me Three Steps. Mm-hmm. I mean, the riff on this, man, this is just a great honky-tonk fight song with a great, great riff in it. It just shows how good of a riff brawl, riff writer and songwriter Collins really was to me. Yeah, it, simple, but you know what it is right off the bat. I think this is an underrated, you know, you talk about greatest rock riffs. It's it's something that if you messed around with the guitar, you could probably figure out fairly easily, but you don't need anything fancy on this one. Like you said, this is a straight ahead bar room track. Apparently, um, like a lot of tracks that Skinner wrote, inspired by a true story. I guess Ronnie was talking to the wrong lady one night and somebody came in and was going to cave his head in. Yeah, suspected his wife was cheating and there she is dancing with this guy. And... <laughs> but see, and that's what makes it kind of a great country song mm-hmm. because it is a true story and it's it's even if it wasn't true it's pretty relatable you ever been in a bar talking to a girl maybe dancing with her maybe buying a drink only to find out uh-oh <laughs> she's a kept woman and i gotta get out of here you know <laughs> the guy in the corner with the smoke coming out of his ears Uh uh-oh yeah yikes so it helps him get on the chart it helps him get a little uh little traction going there and it was Mm. backed by a song called mr banker which is really a blues lament with some pretty good slide guitar in it which may have been ed king i'm not sure i think ed and gary wrote it with ronnie okay but it's basically about begging the bank to right. give him money to bury his old man. And so I didn't really know that song very well before we did research on this. I'm like, well, I, I bet he played that live if I had to guess. Especially at the beginning when you didn't have a whole lot of stuff. I bet that's exactly what happened. Mr. Banker. Mr. Please. 
Probably so. So, and it ended up on like the, the reissue, uh, you know, in the in the aughts. I think it was they they reissued the first record, and I think they did a couple others with some live stuff as well. But hey, this is a big hit from them. They played this for years and years. I bet they haven't not played this like ever, to be honest with you. <laughs> you know, I was looking at this too. Apparently, the place the Jug is still around in Jacksonville. Maybe the next time you're in town, we'll have to make a pilgrimage down there and see what's what. I don't know, man. We could get our asses kicked because we're driving <laughs> by that place, man. I'm telling you, I mean, the, the side of town they grew up on is rough. It still is, man. You know, you don't want to go down there, you know, ordering a Michelob Ultra or something like that, man. You, you know, you got to come ready. Do you have any craft cocktails here? Get this guy out of here. <laughs> could you make me a Manhattan? <laughs> sure, it's right around in the back. Bam. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but great rocker, and it's just I have great appreciation for this riff. That, yeah. It's not a real complicated one, but it's it's good stuff, man. Yeah, I have raunchy bar song written down for the one of my notes. Perfect, absolutely captured it in its essence there, Jackson. No <laughs> doubt about it. Okay, and then they wrap up the first side with "Simple Man." Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't know this song much as like a young man, but. You know, I come to hear it later and you play it in commercials and in movies and stuff like this. I think this is one of the best songs that they've ever done. I think the lyrics are super poignant. And I think the music and Rossington wrote this one with Ronnie. I think the guitar work at the beginning where they're kind of doing the run, you know, some minor run there. And then it's a little bit uplifting. And then they come up with a big riff is heavy. I mean, heavy, hard rock, heavy. This is it's a sad song. But it's also one of spirituality and hope and being true to yourself. And I think it encapsulates who Skinner were better than maybe any song they ever did. Interesting. Well, it, listening to this now, I was thinking to myself, when you, you know, just take a minute and listen to the lyrics, I think we could all maybe do with a little more following this along than uh, being a jackass all the time with me first, me first. It's uh, words to live by. And yeah. uh, you're right. It is the, the, the beginning part is also is awesome. And the uh, the bass is nice, too, because it, it kind of goes along with the riff, but then it kind of sneaks in a couple extra notes there. Um, it, that's one thing that kind of through this whole record when you have, even when you have two guitars and what will later become three guitars, it's hard for the bass to fit in, but they do, whoever's playing the bass, whether it's Ed or Al or whoever is doing that, they do a good job of finding space for the bass in these tracks. Well, that's, that's fair. Yeah. And having Ed on the bass, nothing against Leon, he's a fine bass player and all that, but just having someone who is a multi-instrumentalist and had been with other bands playing other things, mm-hmm. all the guys in the band can really jam, but this has kind of been their only band their whole lives for the most yeah. part, except for Ed, who's been around and seen maybe a little bit more than they had. And, and you're right, him carving out some spots with the bass, it's a little different and it creates a little bit different sound than you would see in 
in maybe later albums. And they don't ask him to do a ton with the bass on this one, but it, it plays a good role. And I never knew that it was basically about the death of Ronnie's grandmother. Mm, okay who may have actually sat him on her knee to tell him some of this stuff when he was a little kid, you know? So it's about, you know, forget your lust for the rich man's gold. Mm -hmm. All that you need is in your soul. You know, go find a woman, you'll find love. Don't forget that there's someone up above. Simple words to live by sometimes, but true. Yeah, it's still very relevant today. Yeah, exactly. And then these badass riffs with some really nice guitar work by Mm -hmm. Gary. I mean, this is... A hard rock song. This isn't a country song, although it's it's maybe got some country-ish lyrics between the riff and the solo. This is a hard rocket too. Yeah, and, and I think I think that's the when we have to put a label on everything. You know, they they were the pioneers of what would become southern rock. Which okay, I mean, I guess, but yeah, I, I don't think they ever got the the credit for being straight ahead rock guitarists because they had that kind of asterisk next to them. Oh, it's southern rock yeah no this this is smoking the lead is smoking on this track it is and it's got a sentiment that i think a lot of southern people and country people can really relate to you Mm -hmm. don't have to be though you don't have to be from the south to to you know to relate to being simple being true to yourself don't worry about all the outside stuff be a good person that your family would appreciate you know like the kind of person we raised you to be that kind of thing like i said i think it's right on with their philosophy of who they are in the world and every time it comes on i think it's i never turn it off i'm like wow this is this is as good as it gets (laughs) we're gonna be here for a minute because yeah i'm not getting out of the car that's right this is over that's right hey this is scott holiday from the rival sons you're listening to the ugly american werewolf in london Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. But that wraps up side one. And then you flip it. Now, side one's kind of a powerhouse, if you ask me. Right. I mean, it, it's it's start off with I ain't the one, which is a rock and tune, also very rock and roll sentiment, like, you know, beat it, baby. You can do better yeah. than me. <laughs> Give me three steps is a big hit with a fantastic rip. Tuesday is gone, is their number one ballad of all time. And then Simple Man, killer hard rock with an amazing message. Then you flip it to the second side. It's like, okay, most of these weren't going to be singles. And some of them are a little more country than they are rock. Mm-hmm. before we get to the very end. Would you agree with me there? Absolutely. Yeah, there, there definitely is a tone switch here on the on the second side. Yeah, yeah. And it starts with Things Going On, which Gary wrote with Ronnie. It's more of a honky-tonk track with Billy really tickling the keys a, a bit on this one. Not nearly as raucous as the stuff that you hear on the first side. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm going to admit, I've really had never heard this song before, but when you listen to it, like, is this a protest song? Are we, are we getting a little bit heavy duty here on this one? Talking about, have you ever lived in the ghetto? You know, things are going on that you don't know. And there was a, 
line about people living across the the water or something like that or being sent across the water i'm like is that about vietnam like what are we talking about here Mm -hmm. this is there maybe there's a little bit more going on in this band that they got credit than they had gotten credit for yeah i mean that's that's a lot of southern people in general are written off by people in the north and those you know in power control the media Mm -hmm. whatever you want to say it's like they're not articulate and they're not smart well they may not always be articulate but that doesn't mean that they aren't smart. And Correct. I find that a lot of what Ronnie's lyrics say, if you really read into them, are a lot deeper than they look at first scratch. You know what yeah, I mean? I would agree. I, I definitely would agree because I, I think a lot of it kind of gets just kind of passed off with the, you know, the kind of the stadium anthem or, or, you know, give me three steps or, you know, talking about drinking and fighting and everything. But yeah, when you get into some of these, there is a lot more going on. I think he would have been a, a pretty interesting person to sit down and talk to as long as he wasn't upset and wanting to kill you. Right. He was sober. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, well, Ed King often said like, because people always ask him, what was Ronnie really like? He said, you go pick out six songs, any six, doesn't matter which you pick out six songs. You look at the lyrics and that's who Ronnie was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very genuine person, it seems mm-hmm. like. Yeah. But this one, I mean, Bill's almost doing a Scott Joplin rag through some of this, you know, yeah. uh, on here. And I love the guitar solo on it. It's a little more spare in the mix. I think Ronnie's voice is up front a little bit more. I love this one, but it, it does deal with some heavy stuff. And mm-hmm. I, I think it's a well-written song. I don't know if I would have loved to hear it live, especially next to all the big rockers. But uh, but hey, I mean, it's it's got some heavy themes that are worth hearing. Have you ever lived down in the ghetto? Have you ever fell down the wind blow? Well, if you don't know what I mean, won't you stand up and scream? Because there's things going on you don't know. Yeah, and it's a nice album cut. It's a nice one to find in here and say, mm, yeah. I mean, like you said, would I want to hear it live? Eh, probably not, but it is cool to to listen to it and to to know that there's a little more than, like I said, the uh, the bar fighting and crashing cars into trees. Exactly. Yeah. Although the next one, Mississippi Kid, kind of goes kind of back into that. <laughs> like, got my pistols in my pocket, you know. Uh, but this is an acoustic song, right? I mean, it's got some. Mm-hmm. Some it's a it, kind of an old blues song with some slide in it, and it might be Ed playing that slide. I'm not sure. It's like it said Ed King plays lead, right? Yeah, and but then Al Cooper is then playing the bass, but he also plays the mandolin on this mm-hmm. one. And, and yeah. he and Burns got co-writes here, which is odd because I mean Bob Burns, there's no drums on it. Maybe he helped with the lyrics, or maybe he helped with the melody, or something like that. But uh, it's a little different as far as the rest of them. I got my pistols in my pocket, boys. I'm- I'm 
Yeah, it's interesting, too, that apparently Ronnie called himself for reasons that no one really knew, the Mississippi kid. And interesting that the plane ended up crashing in Mississippi. So very strange very coincidence. Odd. Yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, no, I th- yeah, this is a this is a little bit of a dirtier song. I, and like you said, Ed is credited with being on the lead. I would assume that he played the slide. I don't know, but um, yeah, I thought that was weird too that that Bob Burns got the writing credit. Like you, you didn't get anything else, but this yeah. one. But yeah, this is another nice album track too to find. I, I agree, and the acoustic work on here is great, and mm-hmm. it fits in with the album. I would say, but it's not hard rock like at all. And I, I wonder how much they played it. I, I, I don't know much about their set list from the seventies. I mean, did they ever like slow down and do acoustic bits? I don't feel like they did. I mean, I kind of think that back then you probably would have killed the moon with the acoustic number. Yeah, you know. Plus, do, do all three guitars come out and play acoustic? Like that's asking a lot. So I, I don't know. But it, it's an interesting one. And yeah, why, why did Ronnie always call himself the Mississippi Kid? It's it's a mystery. And right, the fact he died in Mississippi mm-hmm. just adds to that. Man. It's yeah. kind of weird. Now, the next song, Poison Whiskey. God, it sounds like something they all should have heeded a little bit more to me. You know? <laughs> yes. I mean, now, Ed, Ed co-wrote this one. So this is his co-write on the album. Mm-hmm. And he does do some, he does lay down some good bass here. So that's probably why he got some writing credit here. Leads by Gary and, and more fun keys from Billy. But there's uh, Al Cooper on the organ again and talking about, you know, his daddy being born on Southern land was a street fighting man. You'd think Poison Whiskey, if you're going to write a song like that, you, you might heed your own warning there. But I mean, all the guys in the band... <laughs> How many car crashes did Gary Rossington survive? Alan Collins basically ended his life with a car crash. He mm. didn't. He survived another four years or so, but it, it, it's basically what killed him was that car crash. Yeah. And it killed his girlfriend uh, and it led to the point, you know, he, he couldn't play anymore. So that's that's got to be tough. But but yeah, it's not um, it's kind of coming back. I mean, after these two things going on, in Mississippi Kid. This one's kind of getting back to kind of Skinner's sound, I feel like. Yeah, it's more straight ahead. They're really not trying to tell you anything that you probably don't already know. There were a couple of pictures of Ronnie's father in the movie, and he looked like the kind of guy who might want to get drunk and fight. So maybe not that far off from real life. But you're right, the, this, the tales of what they would do when they were together, pretty much they were just always constantly drinking. Right. You know, and that's that's what you do. And, you know, the thing is, too, it's like if you're a, I don't know, if you're an accountant or something like that, or you're, you're in business and people are like, hey, look, you got to clean yourself up. You got to stop doing this. 
you stop your drinking, then you might have to listen. But if you made it on your own out of a rough situation by being a rocker, right, who basically drinks and parties all the time, you know, you might figure, hey, that warning's for somebody else because I made it this way and I'm going to go out this way too. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think that's part of it too, is that that, that might have been part of the culture of, you know, you were hard drinking, hard partying, just a tough guy. That's what you, that's kind of what your outward appearance was. Like, that's just what you did. Like, there yep. wasn't anybody that like, oh, no, I don't really like drinking. Of course you do. Be quiet. Have some more. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. So that's, that's kind of revving it back up here mm-hmm. to the penultimate song, the last song on side two, and that is Free Bird. Mm-hmm. One of the greatest rock anthems, epics of all time, written between Alan and Gary. And I guess they had had it around for a while, but they just couldn't quite figure out how to piece it all together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then eventually Ronnie's like, hey, I'll put that middle part in there. Give me that. And then it was like he wrote the song in four minutes. <laughs> it's amazing how when creativity strikes, you don't need a, I mean, it, it, sometimes it's just like a lightning bolt and you you know what to do. I know that it, when they play it live, it's a tribute to Dwayne Allman. Right. But listening to this, I mean, I know Dwayne Allman was, you know, you talk about king of slide guitar. It was, it was, it will and always will be Dwayne Allman. But to hear Gary play this, I think he is very underrated as a slide guitarist. I, I think he stands out very much on this track. You're absolutely right about that, Jackson, for sure. Yeah. And I didn't realize that, it was actually Kathy, who uh, Kathy Collins, who at the time was Alan's girlfriend, which first said, if I leave here tomorrow, would you still remember me? Mm-hmm. And I guess that kind of stuck in there. And that became the first line of the song. And it's a song about just being free, because that's what being an American is all about. Right. And honestly, what being a Southern American is all about. You know, you, you don't want a bunch of Northerners coming down and telling you what to do. You want to be outside. You want to be hunting and fishing. And you don't need people telling you, you should do this, you shouldn't do that. And it, it goes, honestly, that attitude goes back to losing the Civil War. <laughs> now, look. <laughs> Politically and sociologically, they should have lost the Civil War, but that doesn't mean that their culture was completely invalid. And right. they just carry it. They've all, so many of them, carry around as a chip on their shoulder. Mm-hmm. Like, God, I wish we hadn't lost. Well, you had to lose for the good of the world. But, <laughs> you know, that doesn't mean that, you know, everything you love and do isn't is it all right? Yeah. And and I think you're right. I think it is, or at least it was at that point in time, kind of, yeah, looked down upon like, oh yeah, you're from the South. Uh, yeah, mm, oh yeah. Go out, go out and do your fishing and hunting or whatever. Yes. But um, yeah, I mean, no, no disrespect to anybody. It, it, that's, that's the way that you want to live. It's just a different way of life. And there is nothing about, there's nothing wrong with being proud of that. Exactly. And um, it was interesting to me that I know you said that they'd been around for a while, but to put something this epic out on the first record is pretty astounding. I know, you know, and it, uh, I mean, there's the big change before the five minute mark when all of a sudden there's all this jamming and you can hear Alan and Gary kind of trading back and forth and stuff like that, mm-hmm. which is so epic. Being a nine minute song is pretty rare and it kind of ramps up like no other, right? Because like mm-hmm. you think of something like Layla, which is a long song, which has a big change. You know, it's a rocking song. And then it kind of has the pretty bit after it. Or something like Can't You Hear Me Knocking by the Stones, which is kind of a down and dirty song. And then it's kind of got this kind of South Seas kind of thing going on with, you know, with some horns and stuff at the end when it makes its big change. But this goes to being kind of a soulful, slowish song into being the biggest jam at the end in the history of the world, you know? (laughs) And it's nice too, because it it was a, I guess it was a chance for Ronnie to have a break too. Cause I mean, he's the only one that sings. 
So to have that like extra extended jam out song, you can just go and probably have some water or maybe not. Something liquid anyway. (laughs) (laughs) And relax and then come back out there for the big finish. But yeah, I mean, even though it is nine minutes long, it never, it doesn't seem long to me at all. Like there are songs that you're like, okay, enough already. Here's another refrain. But this one doesn't feel like that. And once the, you know, once it ramps up to the solo, you're talking about Collins not being your favorite he is a beast he's awesome yeah he is yeah he's awesome i he wasn't my favorite when i was younger i just probably didn't have a good appreciation for him yeah but he's he's fantastic he he may have been the best of the three to be honest with you and you know honestly in doing research i really try to pick out ed's bass and during the jam he's doing some good work on that bass he he really is you know it's i think they call it like walking it around you know, mm-hmm. you're kind you're kind of playing with the the lead, but then you're also kind of doing your own thing. But yeah, it's it's really good on this one. It's, it's, it's really killer, man. You know, and the thing is, it, it may be nine minutes on the record, but they would play it live for like 15 minutes. You know, they would really <laughs> stretch it out. And of course, it should be the last song of the album. You don't put anything after Freebird. Right, you don't yes. listen to anything after that. And they closed, I think, every show they've ever done F- with Freebird, at least after <laughs> the album came out, as they should have. It was actually backed with Down South Jukin. But, but here's an interesting kind of piece of the puzzle that, you know, I obviously wasn't aware of mm-hmm. growing up. So really, Gimme Three Steps was the only single off the album. And then they went ahead and made Second Helping, a song that they had kind of come up with right towards the end of the sessions of the first album was Sweet Home Alabama. Okay. So Sweet Home damn near got onto this record. If this record had had <laughs> that on there. Oh, man unbelievable yeah. i mean out of the gates your first record and you've got give me three steps and tuesday's gone and simple man and Freebird and sweet home that would be unbelievable mm-hmm. okay but they didn't they saved it for the second record even though it was recorded like in the summer of i think i think like it was july of 73 and this came out august 11th of 73 so like too late to get it on the album we'll save it for the next one. Mm-hmm. so the first single was Give Me Three Steps. The second single they ever put out was Don't Ask Me No Questions, which was off of Second Helping in 1974. Then they put out Sweet Home Alabama a little bit later in 74, in June of 74. Then in November of 74, so like a year, more than a year after the first album had come out and after the second album had come out, that's when they released Freebird. Hmm, interesting. Which is interesting. And apparently the single version was only four minutes and 41 seconds. So I assume that means they completely cut out the jam at the end. I don't know if I've ever heard the singles version. Yeah, I, I can't either because, I mean, I don't, by the time we caught up to it, it was just on album rock radio. So yeah, I don't, right. and I, I don't really think I would care to hear the four minute version either. No, no. It's like listening to Reaper with the, solo cut out of the middle yeah. I'm like, where's the rest of it man do you really not have an extra minute and a half to play the killer part of the song <laughs> go fuck yourself you know <laughs> so yeah i don't want to hear the four and a half minute five minute version you got to hear the whole thing and honestly no. 
sometimes I'd rather hear the 14, 15 minute version of it, you know? So. I mean, it, it, like you said, if it's them trading licks back and forth, how could you not want to hear more of that? Exactly. You know, and I think it's like the way Steve Clark auditioned for Def Leppard. Like he played the whole thing by himself. Like he's not trading with anybody. He's just trading back and forth on his own. You know, it's it's iconic. You know, it's it's huge guitar rock. Now, if I have to critique it at all, I'm going in to listen to it because I got to listen to it four or five times before we do the show. Right. It is a little repetitive. I mean, he's, you know, both Alan and Gary kind of do it with a little, 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 little for eight bars. It's like, okay, you can mix it up a little bit, you know. Um, and then there's four bars of the exact same thing. Yeah, you're jamming. It's killer. But I mean, go give it a close listen. And it's like, well, he just did the exact same thing for eight straight bars. <laughs> yes, it's rocking and it's cool. And they're jamming and it's a blast. And live, I bet it's so much fun. But the fact of the matter is they're not moving up and down the neck much. They're kind of, they get to one spot. And they're like, and they kind of do the same thing over and over. <laughs> I'm not saying I don't like it or that it's not good. I'm just kind of pointing out something that maybe we never really thought about before. Yeah, yeah, and, and I could see how you would think that after a while, but it's just, I guess I've heard it so many times that it, it just, kind of, I know that's part of the song, so right. it doesn't really bother me, but yeah, I think if you sat there and really picked it apart, you would... Uh, you would have that thought. But obviously having this song, Freebird, I mean, that sets them up for stardom. They're guitar gods. They're a real hard rock band. It's not, they're not just like a country southern rock. They're a hard rock band. And Second Helping, I mean, I know it had Sweet Home Alabama, which was their biggest single ever on it, but that one went double platinum too. So you come out of the gate, boom, boom, two double platinum albums. That's, that's a pretty big deal. And, you know, they got to open for the Who on the Quadrophenia tour because Al Cooper knew Pete Townsend, you know. So <laughs> suddenly they get exposure to a lot more people. Not to mention they could see, you know, how does a band do, knows how to make some noise come out and do it, you know. That that was a crazy part of the story where it was, you know, Pete, I guess, said something to Al like, hey, man, we're, do you know anybody that would could open for us? As a matter of fact, I do. Mm-hmm. And having them going and playing these giant arenas and then going home and playing bars again in front of, you know, 200 people. Right. That's It's just insane. But I think the, the other thing we got to think about is they re- this band really was not around for that long. When, right. I mean, for the amount of the amount of material they put out and the amount of like hits that they had, I mean, it was really only 73 to 77 and that's it. And that's after right. that, it would they were just I mean, I think they did put out an album in the 90s or two or whatever. But I mean, the, the classic stuff was only just those those few years. I know. I know. And being that when we first met, I was living in Jacksonville. I remember I went home one weekend and found out that Leonard Skinner in 1991 were going to the record store to sign records. So I'm like, well, hell yeah, I'm going to go down there and do it. Uh-huh. And, and I didn't want to buy the 1991 record because I didn't know it and it wasn't the original band. So I bought one more from the road and had him sign that, even though obviously not everybody was on that you know, record who was signing it, right? I mean, like, obviously Johnny Van Zandt wasn't on that record. Right. Got to meet Artemis. Gary, Gary looked rough then, dude. It was more than 30 years ago. Uh, I mean, I could smell them across the table. Like, oh, Jesus, boy. Was, was the plane crash yesterday, fellas? Jesus. Because <laughs> Gary looked rough. Now, Billy, God, I love Billy Powell. He, he just seemed like such a good dude, you know, like a happy guy, yeah. you know, personable. And I just, I remember if you ever watched the VH1 Behind the Music, Tom Wills was on WJXT as a young man then. 
Tom is, I think, still on WJXT, the big CBS station in northeastern Florida, which I'm sure you watch for your CBS News in southern uh, Georgia there. Uh He must be 80 or close to it, but he's still on TV somehow. He had to go to the plane crash to cover the story for Jacksonville News. And Billy wasn't banged up that badly. I mean, I think it almost ripped his nose off, and you can see the blood all over his face. But God bless him, Billy's just standing there on TV with blood all over his nose, talking to Tom about, well, Billy, do you think there'll be a Leonard Skinner after this? And he has to say, I don't think so. Oh, jeez. You know? Yeah, I, I saw that somewhere else. They didn't bring that up in in the if I leave here tomorrow. But yeah, he Billy was the guy that that stepped up and and went and did all the pressers and everything. Even though yes, he wasn't injured as badly as some of the other people, but he was still in a plane crash. And to have yeah. him go out there like with his face all swollen and sunglasses on and just you know answer these questions. Matter of fact, I, I can't even imagine what that was like. But yeah, he just he just seemed like a real nice down-to-earth guy totally you know and then hearing the story about because it's not like they all died on impact you know right they got cassie out of the plane and she basically died in his arms like god i couldn't do that i couldn't deal with that right yeah you know that's horrible of course he lived another 30 years and i think he died of a heart attack he was only 56 when he died you know it's like Mm -hmm. and then so i mean look that's a lot of tragedy for one band i mean they lose cassie and Steve and Ronnie, the band basically has to disband at that point. Then Alan, uh, his wife, dies in childbirth during labor for their third kid. Then he has a nasty car accident and his girlfriend dies and he's paralyzed. And Rossington has a bunch of them. And then, you know, kind of one by one, after Alan dies in 1990, they all kind of start to fall off, like Leon and, and Billy and mm-hmm. They all kind of start to, to, to fall off. And for the longest time, they had this agreement. And I think it was between Ronnie's widow and, and kind of surviving members of bands like, we will never tour Leonard Skinner without at least three of the original or the heyday members. But the oh, problem lady. with that is if the band continues to make money and it helps the catalog continue to sell well and everybody still gets a piece of it, eventually they kind of have to break that promise and continue on. And now that Gary has passed away, not that long ago, uh, there's basically no one left. There's there's zero right. people left, certainly from the original recording. You could say Ricky Medlock was there and then he came back, but nobody's left and they're still touring. I mean, I think they're touring with ZZ Top here. So I guess to celebrate the music, that's okay. I wouldn't want to go see him because there's nothing authentic about it anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've chosen not to see them for a long time because, well, there's just, there's nobody really there anymore. But Hey, look, if you love the band and you want to go celebrate those songs and hear them play live, I'm sure they still do it great because they can get top-notch guys to come in. But I don't know. It's it's just, it's too, it, it's too many generations past for me. Yeah, it, it's basically just, it, I mean, it is a tribute band now. Yeah. But I think most of the guys have been there since, I mean, Ricky's been there since like the mid-90s and um, on his second stint. And then a yeah. lot of the guys were there in the early 2000s. So I mean, yes, no one's left from the original, but I think these guys have been playing together these songs for quite a long time. And, you know, they, they talked about Johnny, you know, filling Ronnie's shoes, but he's like, mm-hmm. well, first of all, he never didn't wear shoes. And, you know, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to celebrate the music. I don't think he's trying to be Ronnie Van Zandt. No. And, you know, the thing is, it's, he's trying to invoke his spirit and Ronnie wasn't an extraordinary vocalist, but he was the front man. Like these songs mm-hmm. are about me, about yeah. my life, you know, and Johnny can, 
you know, embody that just as well in a lot of ways, you know, right up under the same roof, same parents, you know, knows the same stories, right? Right, correct. That is our show on Leonard Skinner's, pronounced Leonard Skinner, approaching its 50th anniversary here. As someone who grew up in the Midwest and did some time in the South as well, you couldn't go anywhere without hearing some Leonard Skinner. It's a big part of the culture, and certainly if you're into rock and roll. When I lived in Jacksonville, I promise you, every fifth or sixth song on classic rock radio is Leonard Skinner. There might be two stations that I listen to a lot. I go from one to the other. I wouldn't have to wait long if I wanted to hear some Skinner. But it's great, good time, hard rock and music, maybe a little bit of a honky-tonk in there sometimes. Very straight-ahead, yet poignant lyrics that I think they don't get enough credit for. Certainly Ronnie Van Zant doesn't get the credit he deserves as a songwriter. And I think there's some stigma about them being from the South. Like, oh, they can only be so good because they're from the South. Or we would put them in this box where they're good, but they're not where other people could be. I don't know. I, I think that's getting old at this point. I think you need to appreciate the great rock and roll that they created. And certainly people down in Jacksonville and around that area still love Leonard Skinner to this day. And they're still going, even though there's nobody really in the band anymore who played on any of their big albums. Doesn't matter. It's still a brand. They're still out there. People still want to hear those songs played. So, as usual, folks, we want to know, do we get something right? Do we get something wrong? Do we miss the point? Do we, do we leave out your favorite part? You have to let us know. Email us. It's UglyAmericanWerewolf at gmail.com. You can let us know the bands, the albums, the concerts, the DVDs, the books, the rock properties that you want to hear us talk about. Please follow us on Twitter, at Ugly underscore Werewolf or at ActionJack72. You can DM us. You can tweet us. We're also on Instagram. We're on Facebook. We're on YouTube. And if you're thinking about it, we'd love you to not only download and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts, but also leave us a positive review. It's a huge help to us in trying to find more rock and roll fans like yourselves. If you're thinking about it, whether it's Apple or Spotify or Good Pods, anywhere you get your podcasts, give us a positive review. It would mean the world to us. And if you send it to us, well, we might just read it on the show. Thank you to Pantheon Podcast for making us a part of this amazing family of music podcasts. And thank you, of course, to RareVinyl.com, our sponsor. So if you're looking for that first pronounced Leonard Skinner album, or really anything from a catalog of over 250,000 items, go to RareVinyl.com, use the code UGLY, and save yourself 10% off your purchases. Now, as far as next week goes, we're, we're celebrating a very big American band this time, but we're going north of the border and to the South Pacific. That's right, we're going north of the border to speak with established, iconic rock writer Martin Popoff, who's written more than 115 rock books over the years. And we're talking about his new book, his big, beautiful coffee table book called ACDC at 50, which you can order now at martinpopoff.com. And it just highlights the band's career over the last 50 years at 50 salient points that were important to their history. It's a really fun conversation, and I can't wait for you to hear it. So as always, folks, until next time, be cool and stay safe. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.